Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. We look at the second chapter together today. As we begin a new series, as we begin to study together and look together through this Gospel. What an awesome opportunity for us to study through this Gospel together. It's not going to be an exhaustive study. It's going to be some highlights as we talk about the signs, the seven signs in particular of the book of John. Now, I was caught when I was reading through the Gospel of John some time ago. I was reading, uh, I think, around John chapter 12, and it said that the Gentiles, the Greeks, that, that is, that the Greeks came to Philip, and they simply said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. And I was caught by the simplicity of that request. I mean, think of that. Sir, we just want to see Jesus. Then as I studied a little bit about it, I realized that some years ago, there was a pastor at First Baptist Church of New Orleans. Some of you have uh, probably heard of him, but Dr. J.D. Gray. Dr. Gray, that was longtime pastor at First Baptist New Orleans, that he had studied that scripture. He looked at it, and after studying it, after it gripped his heart, what he did was he took those words, and he actually put them just here on the pulpit so that every time that he would come to the pulpit, every time he would preach, he would look down and he would see the words, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So that it would be a constant reminder that every time he stood in the pulpit, that every time he was to proclaim God's word, hopefully and prayerfully, the people would see Jesus. And that is the request, isn't it? For those of us who are believers, our heart, our motives are wrapped around seeing Jesus in our lives. And over the next few weeks, especially at this time of year, as we begin to march toward that Easter Sunday, somehow I think we need to see Jesus. And what better way than to look at the signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John and how they grip our hearts and how they show us who Christ really is. I want to talk to you today about the beginning of those miracles as we look in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, On the third day... There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Now, the scripture tells us about this story. Just basically an average story of the day where Mary and Jesus and the disciples are at a wedding. Now, you can imagine those moments of festivity. You know, many of you have been 
part of a wedding or many of you have actually paid for a wedding. How many of you have done that? You'd like to admit that today. You paid dearly for a wedding somewhere along the line. And you know that they can, there can be great opportunities of rejoicing, at great times of just coming together. Sometimes it can last just, it seems like just a little time, and sometimes it can last for a longer period of time. In, in the, really, in Israel at this time in the New Testament, a wedding was something that was just a constant celebration. I mean, the festivities could go on for a week or more. People were betrothed for at least a few months, maybe up to a year, and then there would come that moment of celebration, a whole week or so of festivities. How would you like to pay for that, huh? Those week of that week of festivities. But they would rejoice together. I remember one of the first weddings I did in uh, Pine Grove Baptist Church in Picayune. Now, I came from North Mississippi where weddings did not last but maybe about 30 minutes. That was a long wedding in North Mississippi. But when I moved to South Mississippi, there was a different culture. As a matter of fact, even those of the Baptist churches thought that, the, that this, I almost called it a funeral, the wedding should last much longer. But I did not know that. And I didn't know how to make it longer in some sense. You say you're a preacher and you didn't know how to make it longer. I didn't know, did not know how to make it longer. I believed in coming in, saying what you need to say, and kind of moving on out. Now what I do is I tell them, that they need to add music when they're going to come and they need more songs to make it longer. But I remember coming in, this um, bride who had come from a different faith background who was used to longer weddings, she, we came in and uh, in about 16 minutes we were back out the door. Everything was good, seemed like to me. I thought it was a very successful wedding. They were married and it took a very short amount of time. <clears throat> and before you know it, she said, is that it? <laughs> what do you mean, is that it? Well, I mean, I dressed up like this, and we paid this. and So from now on, I said, I will tell people, if you want it longer, you got to sing more, okay? <laughs> or, yeah, I can really put a doozy on you now if you really want me to. In the day of John 2, weddings lasted a long time, at least the celebration around them lasted a long time and it says here that mary was already there perhaps there was a familial connection but mary was already there and jesus and the disciples they come to the wedding and as the festivities grow and as everything goes it seems like well all of a sudden there's a problem in verse 3 it says and when they ran out of wine the mother of jesus said to him they have no wine this was a big deal Hospitality was so important in the New Testament age. Hospitality was so important. You were expected to be prepared. I mean, how many of you would like to show up at the reception thinking you're going to get a piece of cake and no cake? You have to be prepared for the people who are coming. They have no wine. And in steps Mary. And here we begin to see something about Jesus. In his conversation with his mother at this point, we actually see Jesus' divine sonship, his being the son of the Father above, and he, him knowing his identity, him knowing his identity in the Father. That we see something about his sonship. Notice again the conversation. Mary comes and she simply says to Jesus, they have no wine. 
Now, can we agree on something this morning in this place? There is no one that can cast guilt like a good mother. Right? You know what I'm talking about. Notice here, she is actually, in a sense, trying to put pressure on him. Jesus, they have no wine. In other words, Jesus, you need to do something. Now, Mary knows who Jesus is. And Mary's known who Jesus is for a long time. She's known. And look at this. For a long time, Mary has been the subject of ridicule. She's been the subject of those devastating looks. She knows. And perhaps in her impatience, she says, Jesus, show them who you are. They have no wine. Again, it's hard to say no to a mama, especially when they put guilt on you. I've had my mama and my aunt, who served as a second mother to me as I was growing up. They had my uncle and aunt. They had no children, so it was kind of like we were their children too. So I got a double dose. And both of them knew how to put guilt upon us. I remember the first year that I was doing a Christmas Eve service. And Christmas Eve had always been a big deal at my family up in North Mississippi. It was when all of the family finally gathered together in one place, and we all came together Christmas Eve night. Always did it. Some of you probably do it too. And yet here I was at the first church that had served Christmas Eve services. They had actually served the Lord's Supper during those services. It was about 13 or so years ago. And I remember my mother calling me. She had gotten wind that I wasn't coming home from my sister. Love your sisters, don't you? And my mother called me and said, Well, Reggie, we're getting everything ready for Christmas Eve. Uh, Everything's on go. You're planning to be there, right? I said, well, Mom, actually, I'm not going to be able to come this year. We're having Christmas Eve, Lord's Supper. I'm supposed to be here. Oh, okay. But you know this is the only time we gather during the year. <laughs> well, Mom, I know it's a special time, and I understand that, and, but I just can't this year. I mean, the church, I'm new, and they're expecting me to be at Christmas Eve, Lord's Supper. And she said, oh, okay. Well, I guess we could cancel it if we needed to. <clears throat> Mom, I don't think you need to do that. Well, if you're not going to be here, I don't really see any reason for us to get together if everybody's going to. I'll tell you, I had a Mom 1 and a Mom 2. Mom 1 played the good cop. Mom 2 played the bad cop. My aunt called me that day, and she said, uh, Reggie, I hear you're not coming home. I said, no, ma'am, I'm not. Well, let me tell you something, she said. I was listening to Dr. Charles Stanley this week. And Dr. Stanley, who is the authority on everything, as you know, said that the family came before the church. It was instituted before the church. And I don't quite understand what you can't get that Dr. Stanley has understood and why you can't come home. You understand. You get the point, right? 
they can put some guilt on you. Here's Mary. She looks at Jesus. She says to him, they have no wine. I mean, in a sense, she's saying, Jesus, I need you to do something. I need you to step up, especially if there was some family relationship, because it says again that Mary was already there. Perhaps there was a family relationship. Perhaps Mary had some part in this wedding. And she says, Jesus, I know who you are. I know what you can do. And I'm so ready for you to demonstrate your identity to other people. Will you not do something? Listen to the way Jesus responded. He looked at her and he said, woman. Now, may I say this to you? You and I better never say woman to our mamas. (laughs) At least not in that address. Maybe something like you're a lovely woman or something might go over well. But never begin by saying woman. Now, in the English, that seems so rude of Jesus. That seems like there is such a, uh, a, a, a somehow a distance that is there. And there's a distance, but there is not a lack of affection. Because if you were to turn over in the Gospel of John to John 19, remember when Jesus is on the cross, he will actually look at Mary and he will use that same term, not a term of rebuke, but a term of affection, woman, behold your son. And he will look at John And he will say, behold your mother. So it's not a term of rebuke. It is a term of affection. But it is also, especially in the context here, demonstrating that Jesus does know who he is. And he knows that his purpose and his plan is wrapped into the Father's will and that nothing, not even his mother, can somehow push him to disobedience before God. I want you to see what he says. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. There's the distance in the relationship. There's the affection, but the, but the distance. And you hear in this that Jesus says, I know who I am. And my commitment is to the Father's will. It is to His timing. It is to His purpose. It is about the hour that must come. The hour. That terminology plays so prominent in the Gospel of John. It plays so prominent in the Gospel of John. You'll hear that terminology over and over. Let me give you some examples of it. John 7, 30, it says, So they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. John 8, 20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. John 12, 23 and 24, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here over and over again, Jesus was sensitive to that moment in his life, to that purpose in his life that he would fulfill before the Father. So what he's saying here in this first miracle, as you hear it given to us by John, is that there is a divine sonship, that he is dedicated to his Father and his purpose and his will and to that hour that will come. The hour in particular will be that Passion moment, that moment where 
Christ Jesus dies upon the cross and then three days later is resurrected in power and in glory. That's the hour. That's the moment. That's the purpose. And what he says is is no person, no circumstance will somehow push him, push him out of the Father's will. This is the moment and he understands that and he will fulfill that in his life. Jesus says, I'm going to do this. John, in John's gospel, there are 21 chapters. 21 chapters in the gospel of John. 11 chapters, get this, 11 chapters of the 21 focus on the last week of Jesus' life. 11 out of 21. Purposeful. As John, through the Holy Spirit of God, writes, purposeful that he would include 11 out of 21 chapters, over half the book basically, deals with the last week, which is when the hour has come. Because Jesus is committed to fulfilling the Father's will. On a side note, on a side note, may I say to you that God has a purpose and a plan for every one of us as well? Now, I understand it's not the same purpose or plan that Jesus had. I understand that. Jesus' unique plan of salvation, I understand that. But God also has a plan and a purpose for every one of us. And it is important for us in our lives to see what God would have us to do and to be committed to the Father's will and not let people nor circumstances nor anything else push us away from the will of God. So first, in this miracle, as you see Jesus, you see his sonship. But also in this miracle, you will see Jesus' sufficiency, his sufficiency for our lives. Again, verse 5, after declaring this relationship with his mother, after he clarifies it, that is, verse 5, it says, His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. I heard a preacher one time preach on just that verse. The greatest advice that was ever given, he called it. Whatever he says to you, do it. Very simple instruction, right? Well, verse 6, it said, Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. 20, 30, somewhere around there. These are large water pots. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And verse 9 says, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made with wine, did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. Notice that here's Jesus in the midst of this moment where they have run out of wine, where they have become socially embarrassed. I mean, this was a a social faux pas at this point. But not only that, literally, people could could, uh, face legal ramifications. Think how big a deal this was. That literally, you could face legal ramifications if you ran out of preparation during a wedding. That's how serious hospitality was taken in the New Testament era. And if I'm coming over, 
You better take it that seriously too, okay? <clears throat> Have enough. Here they had. They had run out. Can you imagine? I mean, you were prepared. You had gotten ready and they had run out. But Jesus, all he had to do was, all Jesus had to do was work his miracle. And he would bring them all that they needed. Again, notice six water pots, 20 to 30 gallons apiece, 18 to 27 in some regards, 20 to 30 in others. Basically, you're talking about 150 gallons. 150 gallons that now this is able to provide for all of the wedding party, all of the guests it could provide. Just say to you that God's resources never run out. God's resources never run out. They are always sufficient. We may run out on our own. But God's resources will never run out. John 4, later on in this context, basically as he's, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, that's what he'll say about this water that springs up within, an everlasting and eternal water. In other words, his water would never run out. His resources would never run out. I'm going to tell you there are moments in my life where I feel like I have run out of my resources. Now, I'm not talking about financially or anything else. I'm talking about it feels that I am physically and emotionally and spiritually spent. Some of you have been there. It feels like that we've just totally run out of what we need. May I remind you that with Jesus, his resources are always sufficient. About the time, about the time you need fresh water spring up in your life, he's there. About the moment you feel like you're ready to give up and the energy has waned, he is there. And some of you come this morning and you may be exactly there. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And yet today, Jesus wants to demonstrate his sufficiency for you as well. He wants to give you the resources, the spiritual, the physical, the emotional resources that are available. Jesus steps in. They are filled to the brim. They are filled to the brim. And his sufficiency is demonstrated. But not only Jesus' sufficiency, but also, in a sense, his superiority. I want you to notice what it says here. It says again in verse 9, when they take this wine to the master of the feast, he's the master of ceremonies. He's the head waiter, if you will. He, they take it to him to try. He understands the good quality of this wine. The good quality of it. He, he's kind of like, why have you held this back? Why did you keep it back? Now, you know, something I've come to understand as I've read and looked at this passage is that in that day, in the New Testament day, this was a popular um, trick 
that people would pull, turning water into wine. It, it was kind of, literally, it's kind of like pulling a rabbit out of a hat today. You know, it's, that's kind of the popular, no, you're not with me. You know what I'm talking about. Popular trick today is just pulling the rabbit out of the hat. Well, in the New Testament age, the trick was turning water into wine. And they would do it. I mean, there were so many charlatans that could pull their own thing and they could convince you of this and deceive you of that. Notice here, by the way, that Jesus never touched these water pots. He never touched it. He couldn't add just a little something to it. He couldn't fix it. He, he couldn't have done it any other way, but basically just speaking it, if you will. He, they filled it to the brim so that nothing else could be added. He doesn't touch it, showing his power and his superiority of being able to truly perform a miracle, not just pull a trick for somebody, but to demonstrate a miracle. They take it to the headmaster, to the master of ceremonies, to the head waiter, and he begins to taste it, and he begins to see the superiority. Now, look. Usually what happens is they would bring the best out. Why? Because that's when the palate can really appreciate the good stuff. I, one of my favorite places to eat. I talk about that a lot, but I'm sorry. It's just the way I'm wired. One of my favorite places to eat is Texas Day Brazil. You ever heard of that? Do we have one in Ruston? Anybody's watching this? broadcast would you get us one in Ruston we'd love to have it <laughs> Texas Day Brazil there was one in Baton Rouge I used to go down pretty often and oh uh, eat a little bit and I hear there's one over Shreveport I think and so there's going to be some hospital visitation over to Shreveport before too long probably some more that is <clears throat> and I'm going to find that place but I loved it because you know you would you would begin to eat and they would give you these little like bananas these fried like bananas that you were supposed to eat and would cleanse your palate and therefore you could enjoy the next piece of meat and stuff like that. It's just cool. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but it's awesome, I'm telling you. You need to take me. Don't look at the prices beforehand. Just take me. Well, and here, here you have them bringing out, basically because in the beginning the palate is fresh. It's like Texas Day Brazil, though. When I continue to eat and continue to eat, it all begins to taste the same after a while because my sensitivities are dulled. And he says here, why have you waited to bring out the good stuff? Usually people bring out the good stuff in the beginning because, and then they serve the stuff that's not as good later because now your sensitivity has been dulled. You can't really taste it as well. But this stuff is the best stuff, which reminds me. With Jesus, his stuff is always the best stuff. It's always superior. And Jesus is superior. And when I look at this, I'm reminded of the superiority of Christ. And I try not to spiritualize these things too much, but I want you to notice that if you look at the context of this book and the context of this chapter, you will see that Jesus is demonstrating his superiority even over Judaism. You say, where do you get that? Well, first of all, in the Gospel of John, there seems to always be a physical and spiritual sense. John chapter 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, and he's talking about a new birth. Nicodemus thinks he's talking about a physical birth. Remember that? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You must be born of the Spirit. 
talking about a spiritual birth. In John chapter 4, again, the woman at the well, Jesus is there with her and he says he offers her everlasting water, water that will never run out. And she says, give me that kind of water. I want to have that physical type of water. But Jesus is talking about a spiritual water. So there's a physical, kind of a physical plane and then there's a spiritual plane upon which you understand the gospel of John. And as you look at this, you will see in these next few verses that Jesus is demonstrating his superiority over the understanding of Judaism in the New Testament world. Notice, notice, for example, in verses 13 through 22, right after this miracle, what do we have included in the Gospel of John? Jesus going in and cleansing the temple. Cleansing the temple. Literally, it says that he made a whip of cords and he drove out these tax collectors. He drove out these people that had prostituted Judaism. Notice here he's going to demonstrate his authority and his superiority over Judaism. If you look in John 3, he's going to talk about the new birth, a new birth. Later, John the Baptist is going to talk about the one who is coming, who is the one to be loved and trusted. In John 4, as I mentioned, the Samaritan woman will understand that what Jesus has to offer is far superior than her understanding of physical water. So I say to you, even in this miracle, even as you see Jesus uh, transform this water into wine and this wine of this great quality, superior quality, it reminds us that Jesus and his message and his work is far superior than anything that they've ever experienced before. It's greater than their legalistic minds could comprehend. He is superior. So again, in this miracle, it says something about Jesus' sonship. It says something about Jesus' sufficiency. It says something about Jesus' superiority. And finally, it just says something about Jesus' salvation. About Jesus' salvation. It says, verse 11, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. This was the beginning, in a sense, of these miracles, of these signs. These signs, what are signs? Signs are miracles with messages. Signs are miracles with messages. And this is the first of the signs that you find in the Gospel of John. And it says, and it manifested his glory. In John 1, verses 14 through 16, in that first chapter, it said, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness we have received, we have all received, and grace for grace. You see, all of this was done. All of these miracles. Certainly they were done to help people because God cared for people. We know that. We're going to look at some more of these. But know that every one of these miracles, every one of these signs had a message behind them. Every one. And each one would point to who he was and his salvation and his work that he was coming to fulfill. And his disciples believed in him. Because that is the purpose of a sign. The purpose of a sign is for us to hear the 
see the miracle, hear the message, and respond in faith. His disciples at this time, I think about five or so, who had followed him, who had come along with him, they believed. The tense of that verb means that they did it decisively. They believed. They trusted. In a few weeks, Easter Sunday, we'll look at John twenty thirty one, the purpose statement of this book. And basically, it'll say that these things have been written. All of these signs have been recorded so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have eternal life, he says. That's the purpose. The purpose always has been faith and belief. And through this, through this miracle, we see his salvation demonstrated. We see his work accomplished. Now notice this was... This occurs in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. A lot of debate on what that means happening on the third day. Some people believe that it probably was on Tuesday. A lot of Jewish weddings like to take place on Tuesday because it was the third day in the, in the idea of creation. You had Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And on Tuesday in the creation account, God said twice that things were good. So they believe that if you got married on Tuesday... You were doubly blessed, basically. And maybe that's what it was on the third day. All kinds of different things back and forth. And again, without spiritualizing too much, though, there does seem to be some significance and connection to the third day, even the third day upon which Jesus was resurrected. Because get this, in that day, as Jesus rose again, he demonstrated his superiority, his sufficiency, demonstrated his salvation. He demonstrated that he was the Son of God. On the third day, he demonstrated he was above and beyond every other that would try to make a claim for the throne. He demonstrated that he could give forgiveness and he could bring life much superior to the legalism of the Jews of the New Testament day you see this is just the beginning the beginning of miracles but already we begin to hear his message and already we're challenged to place our faith and our trust in him today if you're in this place First of all, if you've never trusted him, know he is much more than a magician. He is the Lord of lords and he is the King of kings. And I would encourage you to come and bow before him today. For those of you who've accepted him and you feel like you're just running out today, experience his sufficiency for your life. Come to him. Experience renewal experience life come to him believe in him trust in him follow him i invite you to know my lord and to seek him today